Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 51st episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the previous week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Um, lots of stuff going on. As always, there's no uh, shortage of things to talk about. So um, we'll just jump right into it. Let's do it. So, uh, as always, we'll just take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the year and the month of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on June 17th, and this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index up 2.27% for the month, down 3.53% for the year. The Dow up 2.9% for the month and down 8.32% for the year. The NASDAQ up 4.43% and uh, for the month and up 10.45% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 2.07% for the month and down 14.43% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States is up 4.89% for the month and down 10.7% for the year. Three-month T-bill yield currently uh, at 0.17%, the two-year Treasury yielding 0.19%, and the 10-year Treasury yielding 0.71%. So at least we have a regular yield curve. We again. do. I was thinking that, and I was also thinking <laughs> uh, of this. Separated perform- by two basis points, I guess, on the three-month and the, the, the two-year. Two but yeah, at least it's heading in the right direction. Yeah, and I was also kind of thinking, you know, look at the performance difference between all these equity indexes, you know? It's been quite some time, Mark, where we're kind of this far into the year and you have such a performance difference between the NAS, the small caps, international. I mean, heck, look at the S&P and the Dow performance difference here to date. Yeah, I think it's uh, indicative of just all the volatility that we had. I think that's normal to see in periods like this, but everyone has been so used to the melt-up over the past three, four years that everyone's used to these indexes moving in tandem together. Yeah, being highly correlated, right? Right, right. Yep. Um, so last week was a rougher week, I guess, for the market. So uh, renewed COVID fears, um, as people say, or sent stocks to their biggest weekly decline since March. Yep. And value stocks kind of surrendered their recent market leadership and recorded the steepest drops um, in addition to small cap names, uh, which also underperformed. And this is going back to what we discussed a couple of weeks ago, Matt, about this rotation. We're talking about, you know, is this going to last or is this just short term? We talked about how at a certain point, money is going to flow into the most beaten up areas of the market, but it's seeing if that's going to last. And obviously, I think that was a short term thing. And, you know, tech is continuing to outperform now. And I think you're going to see that over the long term more. I think the best thing also throughout there for our newer listeners, Mark, is remind them that just because a stock is cheap. A, doesn't mean it's safe, and B, doesn't mean it can't get cheaper. Right, exactly. Yeah, just look at the energy sector. Um, Also, Powell, during his Fed press conference, predicted that unemployment rate would end 2020 at 9%. 
0.3% and uh, warned of some permanent job losses. But they also uh, committed to keeping interest rates uh, pretty much at zero through 2021 and into 2022. Yeah, I think the uh, premise behind that for Powell was to uh, target to get back to full employment. And I think they're kind of estimating as of right now, it could take 18 months. Yeah. And I think I know everyone gets on the Fed for everything that they're doing. But I mean, I, I truly believe that they're doing what they're doing now to fulfill their mandate. Right. So um, Fed Chair Powell was talking about you know, he was answering questions from reporters about <clears throat> people thinking that they're just propping the market up. And he kind of was like, I really I don't care what the market does. You know, we're trying to maximize employment for people. And this is why we're doing what we're doing. We're not doing this to prop the market up and and get a, a, a bubble going. Yeah, but it just so happens that's a byproduct of getting full employment back. Right. You know, you get consumer spending. It's good for corporate earnings, which buoys the market. So obviously it's a byproduct of it. But that's not what their main goal is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think people have to remember that because, you know, when they hear reporters or the media talking about the Fed propping up the market, they think that's the only reason why they're doing it to benefit the rich and yada, yada, yada. But yep, I tend to disagree with a lot of that. But um, lastly, before we move on, um, White House senior advisor Kevin Hassett placed odds of another fis- uh, fiscal stimulus package at near 100 percent chance. So. Yep. so they're still debating that Heroes Act. I, I heard a couple days ago, and there's definitely another round of $1,200 checks that's definitely being debated in that. And my understanding, it's still in the House. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week, Matt. I'll let you um, go ahead. All right, Mark. I got two to start off for listeners. The first one has to do with um, number of adults. Um, living in parents' or grandparents' homes grew by more than 2.7 million in the months of March and April. This is according, Mark, to Zillow, and it was issued on June 11th, okay? I'm going to read a little bit more from this kind of release they had. Um, Zillow says potential rent lost from Gen Z alone could total an estimated 726 million okay and they said of the 2.7 million of people moving back in with their family of the 2.7 mark 2.2 million of those were generation z between the age of 18 and 25 and that represents about 1.4 percent of the rental market and zillow goes on to say if these jobs are permanently lost or slower to recover than expected that could free up many rental units and drive prices down so just throwing it out there, mm-hmm. you're certain to see that trend of people moving back in with the economic hardships. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, this was probably highly anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, that's never a, a good thing for, for most people if they're, you know, moving back in with family and that type of thing. And I'm sure it's not what their first move would have been well, if everything course. was normal. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I was reading i was just scrolling through twitter last night and i came across someone tweeting something that um i think was it it might have been the state of new york was thinking about suspending rent payments for a year for everyone who pays rent in new york which i don't know legally how that works but 
I heard that that was in the works. So I don't know how that that's gonna it's gonna have a, a domino effect, which I don't know if that's the smart move to do. But that's a horrible idea. Yeah. So I don't know. Just thought it was interesting that I saw that. I don't know if it'll come to fruition, but I just heard it's in in the works. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Okay. Um, next one I got kind of sticking on this same kind of theme a little bit. Uh, Bespoke Investment Research had an update on the housing mark on June 10th, sir. Mortgage purchase applications, so purchase, okay, have risen for a record eighth straight week and are just a whisker shy of 10-year highs. Wow. Think about that. Purchase, not refinance. Purchase. And so, you know, here in the Dayton area, um, I have spoken to a couple of realtors and inventories are extremely tight. Prices are up. Um, you know, activity is is still there. So at least in Dayton. And I'm telling you, these prices are hanging in there. Yeah, they are. And it's kind of it's not funny, but it's, you know, ironic that we we just had two data points that show both sides of it. Right. Where, yeah. you know, it's still OK for a lot of people because people are still buying houses. Um, but, you know, people are moving back home, too. So you can just see the the vast difference of how this has had an effect on different areas of the population. Um, and I also think you're seeing the younger demographic be more fiscally responsible. Yeah, which is positive. You know, really I, positive. I think that they're not going out there and, and taking a bunch of debt, a bunch of leverage, at least a lot of the people that I talk to in, in the younger age demographic. And hence, they're not going to fully buy that house until they're financially ready to do so. Right. So I think if anybody has the perception that the younger demographic is uh, uh, fiscally irresponsible as a whole, that I would differ from that statement. Misconception. I, yeah. I, I think it is. What, what's your opinion? Yeah, I know. I do, too, because everyone always, you know, rails on uh, millennials for being irresponsible, for being babies, for being, um, you know, uh, not thrifty, um, not have everything savers, handed to them. have everything handed to them. And you can't just you can't just bunch all those people together. No. Um, you know, they're part of the U.S. population and part of the metric that we talked about the other week about the personal savings rate jumping by 33 percent. You know, they're contributing to that. You better believe it. So, yep. um, yeah, I think I don't think you can generalize that that group. Well, I'll send it back to you, Mark. You got a couple for us this week? Yeah. So the first one I have is from MFS, and this was on June 15th. So they said the United States officially dropped into a recession on February 29th, 2020. It's sixth recession in the last 40 years, uh, for example, since 1980. The announcement confirming the start of this economic downturn was released on June 8th, 2020, exactly 100 days after the recession started. The next most recent recession in the country began at the end of December of 2007 and lasted 18 months through June 2009. The announcement of the 2007 recession was released on December 1st, 2008, 336 days after the recession started. And this was from the National Bureau of Economic Research. So I just thought that it was interesting that, you know, they called the recession 100 days after it, as opposed to the, the previous recession. They didn't call it for, you know, almost a year. It lagged, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I just wanted to throw this out there because everyone has their own definition of what a recession is. Um, so, you know, in my book, it's two negative quarters of GDP growth, quarter over quarter. Mm -hmm. I think that's what most people use. But 
people use other metrics for it. So um, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, we are in a recession right now. So the thing that comes to mind when I see this is I have seen statistics in the past that show going back, say, like 100 years, every time that the recession was officially announced, what the forward looking returns were in the equity markets and I'm go out on them and say positive. They're very juicy. Yeah. So look at the date back in 08 when it was released. December 1st of 08, the market bottomed in March of 09, very close to that. Mm -hmm. And I bet if you look at that one year forward looking return, juicy. Yeah. And so what I'm getting at is this one was announced officially on uh, June 8th, 2020. Mm -hmm. Makes you speculate if I was Paul Hickey right now uh, from Bespoke, um, I'm going to tag him to this podcast and I'm going to challenge him to produce this statistic. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think they've had stuff similar like that in the past. So I think you should be able to pull that up pretty easily. Yeah. And then um, assuming he does it, I'll report it back to listeners next next week. Okay. Um, and that's the other thing, too, that I wanted to mention is, you know, everyone gets super scared when people say, oh, we're in a recession. And just the word recession, I think, freaks people out. But again, going back to the previous five weeks that I think I've mentioned it now on the podcast is that the stock market's not the economy and the economy's not the stock market. Stock market already priced in. We were going to be in a recession months ago. Now that already happened. pricing in That's, the recovery, which is multiple, multiple quarters down the road. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, next was an article by uh, Michael Batnick, and he posted this back on March 18th, Matt. So just a few days before we made the bottom uh, so far in this pandemic. And he titled this blog post, When is the Right Time to Buy Stocks? And I just wanted to make a couple points on it. So he starts the article by saying, I want you to scroll through some charts of previous bear markets. I've circled the bottoms in red. And if you go to our website, jessupwealthmanagement.com, hover over the podcast tab and click show notes, you'll be able to link to this article so you can see the charts that, that he listed here. But he circles all the bottom, the bottoms of each uh, bear market coming out of the bear market in red. And then Michael says, looking through this, one thing is crystal clear to me. It doesn't matter when you buy, only that you buy. What's critical is that you don't just make mental plans to get back in. You have to write them down. For example, I'm going to break up my purchases into four tranches, the first Wednesday of every month for the next four months. Whatever it is, it doesn't have to be rocket science. It just has to exist. It's also worth saying the obvious, which is that you don't have to have 100% of your portfolio invested in stocks. Um, Give this guy a football. He needs to spike it. Yeah, I He's know. nailing it. One last chart I want to leave you with this long-term, excuse me, one last chart I want to leave you with is a long-term look at the Dow. Bear markets all have one thing in common. They end. Everybody who has ever invested during our darkest days has ultimately been rewarded. There's no reason to think this time is any different. What have we said before on the podcast? What is the most expensive term on Wall Street? It's different this time. It, exactly. <laughs> so I just thought that was pretty good and pretty timely, right? It was right before the right before the market bottom. So if you took Michael's advice, then high five to you. But 
Um, again, just goes back to having a plan that whatever's going on in the market or the economy shouldn't affect your monthly contribution to your 401k or your monthly contribution to your IRA. That stuff needs to keep going. Yes. And so it reminds me of two points, Mark, you've made to listeners in the past. One, focus on what you can control, mm -hmm. i.e. contributions. Yep. And secondly, as a reminder for people, since this is still recent in memory and we're seeing the market recover, that during uh, late February and March, when people wanted to sell, you remind listeners, not only do they have to time the sale right, Mark, but they got to time the purchase right, too. Yeah. And the statistical chances of timing both of those is very difficult. On top of the fact, and we've talked about this in the past, most people that sell during those types of time periods usually end up buying back at higher prices. Right. When it feels safe. Right. And it didn't, you know, it didn't feel safe for a lot of people after 07, 08 until 2016. And people and missed what happened out. during that time period. Yeah. Yeah, we were in a raging bull market and they missed out on all My that. other favorite thing is in. once it starts to move and I'm going to generalize and say now, it's like, well, when the next little pullback comes, I'll buy. OK, well, let's go back to last Thursday where, you know, the market was down four or five percent in one day. I bet those people didn't buy. Yeah. Yep. So I think it's not trying to go, be critical. Going to go lower. Not trying to be I'm critical buy at a better price. But then going back to this article that you've linked to. I think this is an opportunity. If, if you are one of those people, listeners, consider the article. Everyone has their different circumstances, but right. I think it's a good point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the last thing I want to mention was a chart from Bespoke Investment Group on June 3rd, and they laid out a relative strength chart of the stock 600, uh, which is a euro uh, indice mm -hmm. against the S&P 500. So this is kind of like European stocks versus uh, American stocks yep. or stocks listed on an American exchange. Got it. And since 2010, up until now, the S&P 500 has been a massive, massive outperformer of international and European stocks. Not surprised. Um, and I think this is due just to the strength of the U.S. dollar, which is starting to weaken a little bit. But again, it's weakened a little bit for a couple of weeks the past year or two, and it hasn't really come to fruition into a long term trend. So uh, we link to this um, this chart on our show notes so people can look at it. But until we start seeing a meaningful reversion in this chart, then, you know, in my opinion, you know, U.S. stocks are going to continue to outperform. And as long as the dollar stays strong, it's going to exacerbate that even further. Yeah, I mean, this is my personal opinion. I'll add to it. First of all, I agree with you, Mark. Um, to add to it, the eurozone's economic growth, if you look at GDP, is horrific. Um, you know, the debt to GDP of a lot of the eurozone nations are not good, a lot worse than the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, I just... Not a fan. That's yeah. the best way I could say it. Yeah. And everyone, you know, everyone's been, not everyone, but I've been hearing people you know, cheap. over the, the past, cheap. Cheap. yeah, over the past five years saying that, you know, we're, we're rebalancing our, our investments to have a more international exposure just because they're quote unquote so cheap, but it, it, <laughs> it's been a bad move if you've done that. Yeah, it's like anything else, you know, um, a dead clock is right two times a day, right? Right. right. And so eventually they're going to get it. <laughs> yeah, eventually, but... But it could take some time. Right, 
Right. All right. All right. So for the first time ever, a first on the podcast, I'm going to throw it back to you for the financial planning topic of the week. This is exciting. It only took 51 episodes. <laughs> only, Mr. only a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, listeners, here's what I got for you this week. I have an article that I've selected from um, CNBC and it's titled, um, here's how unpaid debt is handled when a person dies. So I thought this was unique, Mark. And I thought it'd just be a good kind of uh, article to go through for listeners. Okay. So I'll start and I'll just dive in. Uh, So creditors generally try to collect what's owed to them by going after the descendants estate mark during a prospect during a process called probate. Okay. Uh, There are instances, however, where the surviving spouse or another heir may be legally responsible. Okay. It's not unusual for a person to pass away and leave behind some unpaid debts Uh, for their beneficiaries, typically the surviving spouse or children. The question awfully often is what exactly happens to those obligations? The answer, it depends on both the type of debt mark and the laws of that specific state. So a person's assets, no matter how meager or massive, become their estate at death. That includes, Mark, as you know, things like financial accounts, possessions, real estate. And generally speaking, it's the estate that creditors go after when they try to collect money that they're owed. So fortunately for surviving spouses or other beneficiaries, in most cases, that debt isn't something they would be responsible for. However, there are a few exceptions, and this is what I wanted to highlight. Okay. Um, but before that, first, some basics. Okay. The process of paying off all of your debt after your death and then distributing any remaining assets from your estate is called probate. Each state has its own laws governing how long creditors have to make a claim against the estate during that time. In some places, it's just a few months. In other states, Mark, it could last a couple of years. Each state also has its own set of rules for prioritizing debt that should be paid from the actual estate. So, for example, in most states, funeral expenses take priority, then the cost of administering the estate, then taxes, then most states include hospital and medical bills. Okay, this all makes sense so far. Mm-hmm. Um, however, not all of a person's assets necessarily are counted as a part of the estate for probate purposes. And this is the biggest highlight so far, in my opinion. Here we go. For instance, with life insurance policies and qualified retirement accounts, 401ks, IRAs, Mark, those assets go directly to the person named as the beneficiary and are not subject to probate. Additionally, assets placed in certain types of trust also pass outside probate as does jointly owned property, things like, say, real estate, as long as it's titled properly. Yeah, and I just want to interject for a second, and that's sometimes one of the the big pulls for people to set up trusts is that it for creditor protection, right? So assets in a trust, creditors can't go after. However, I'm not a huge, and again, this is just my personal opinion, I'm not a huge fan of people leaving IRAs to trusts because with the new rules um, just implemented in 2020 with the Secure Act, uh, beneficiary most beneficiaries inheriting an IRA if it's not your spouse 
are subject to be depleted in 10 years. Yep. So regardless, you know, that money has to come out of the trust within a 10 year period and the creditors can just be like, okay, well, the money's going to be out of the trust in 10 years. So I'm just going to wait <laughs> and it, and then they can, they can go after it. Yep. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Mark, I think it's a great point. So for listeners, if you have any questions in regard to financial planning on our team, we have an in-house para planner, Aaron Kramer. He's really good at this type of stuff. So I'd, I'd recommend that if you have any questions, go to our website, jessupwealthmanagement.com. You can um, reach out to Aaron through our site. Okay. Um, thank you for those points, by the way. So going on, in fact, a person could pass away with an insolvent estate that is one lacking the means to pay off its liabilities and yet have passed on assets that did not go through the probate and generally can't be touched by creditors. OK, just as you were kind of alluding to. Mm -hmm. However, a handful of states have community property laws which make debt at death a bit more complex. Generally, those states view both assets in certain debt that accumulated during the marriage as equally owned by each spouse, meaning, Mark, a surviving spouse could be responsible for paying back the debt, even if it was only in the descendant's name. Okay, Debt that couldn't have been avoided during the marriage, like medical expenses or a mortgage, generally become the responsibility of the surviving spouse in community property states. Also, anytime you jointly own debt, i.e. you co-sign for a loan, you're expected to continue paying if the other person passes away. You can ask for the debt you co-signed to be forgiven, but don't expect the request to work. Okay. Lastly, it's worth noting that federal student loans, unlike most forms of debt mark, are forgiven if the student dies. Really? I did not know that. I didn't either. Uh, parent plus loans, often held by the parents, to help pay for educational expenses not covered by other forms of financial aid are discharged if either the student or the parent who took out the loan passes away. Wow. Didn't know that either, did you? No, I didn't. So essentially if you so if you're married and your spouse has a credit card and they've accumulated a debt um during the marriage, the surviving spouse in a is, community property state state would be responsible for that. They're at risk for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the article was alluding to, you know, you can write a well-crafted letter to request to get out of that. But it's like, you know, it's not a guarantee. Right. 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 So, this, I mean, this is another that it's a good article that, you know, it's another reason why it should make people think of getting their finances in order, because. You know, when your spouse passes away or when a loved one passes away, it's hard enough to deal with that emotional burden. But then on top of that, if they had a lot of debt that you're going to be responsible for as the surviving spouse, that's going to send your stress levels through the roof. Absolutely. So as hard as it is to sometimes have these conversations, especially with your spouse, I think it's something that needs to be had so that, you know, the surviving spouse isn't left hanging uh, out to dry when when they're responsible for debt payments. And to extend that a little bit further, I mean, when you think about estate planning, it's um, passing money to the next generation in the most efficient manner. And in addition, I want listeners to remember this. Most people just think about, well, if I pass away, my 401k is X and I have a little bit in the brokerage account and then I have the house. Most people tend to forget you got to include life insurance in there. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I think if you put pencil to paper 
and added everything up, it tends to be a pretty sizable number if someone were to pass. And you got to do accurate planning and sit there and say, if you don't have a plan in place, can your uh, child when they turn 18 handle six figures, potentially seven figure inheritance? And the answer more often than not, Mark, is no. I know I wouldn't been able to do that. So with that being said, if you have a trusted advisor, reach out to him or her, start to have the estate planning uh, uh, process conversation going. And again, a plug for uh, Aaron, if you don't, Aaron Kramer is our in-house para planner. Um, he has the knowledge and software to help people uh, kind of plan this out. And um, he can work in coordination with your estate planning attorney. We're not attorneys. We can't draft those types of documents. However, we can help guide that process. And usually Aaron's the best starting point. Yeah. Just want to throw that out there. Yeah. Um, anything else, Matt, before? Um, next week, we're going to be recording the podcast on Friday. I mm-hmm. want to throw that out there. And we are very, very close to the end of this quarter. So, um, you know, the yearly calendar in regards to the market is just ingrained in me. And so we're getting near the end of the quarter. Expect some volatility um, going into the end of the quarter. It's normal. So we just want to throw that out there. Okay. All right. Well, if that's it, um, thanks everyone for tuning in to the 51st episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. We hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week and safe weekend, and we will be back with you next Friday morning. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.